0: We are here with film producer, writer, director Michael Pfeiffer, who has produced 98 films, directed 59 of them, and has written 34. Michael, how are you today?
1: Uh, I'm great, thanks. I'm actually uh, starting a movie on Monday and finished one last Wednesday.
0: <laughs> wow, so you are all over <laughs> actually, the place.
1: Actually, directing my 61st movie, I think.
0: Wow, 61 movies already. Yeah, yeah. You are going to, like, the Russ Miles school of quick production films. <laughs> yeah, minus right. the nudity.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, Russ Miles. And um, I actually was going to do a film with Roger Corman last <laughs> year, um, and it didn't really pan out, but I, I met Roger Corman at a at a small party, and he's 92 or 93 years old, and he called me up and said he wanted me to make a movie for him. But... Uh, uh, you know, it just worked out, it well, that's unfortunate.
0: Long. Yeah, that would have been a, a nice highlight of my career. <laughs> right. Well, well, this is the highlight of my day. And the word in Aramaic and in Hebrew is kismet, which means fate. Uh, right. Because I'm taking a screenwriting class and I told everybody my goal is to crank out a couple of Hallmark Christmas movies. And it seems as if you are the king of the Hallmark Christmas movies and the Lifetime uh, you know, kill the ex boyfriend husband movies.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny, I haven't uh been making too many Hallmark like movies lately. Really lately it's been all about the lifetime type <clears throat> movies. Um, for a while there I was the sort of the true crime serial killer guy, and mm-hmm. then I was the dog the Christmas guy, and then sort of the romantic comedy Hallmark kind of guy, and then lately it's really been ninety percent, ninety five percent of my work has been lifetime. Type movies or what we call female centered thrillers, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I've got a lot of tips on how to write how to write these films. <laughs> I do it a lot. Yeah, uh,
0: the the running joke, if I'm, I'm sure you've seen as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson, and sure. there's there's the one scene where he's at his publisher's office and the receptionist freaks out asking him how he writes women so well, and the line in the movie is, uh, "I take a man and remove thought and reason, and that's how I do it." And, uh, you know, that, that's the joke in that, in that film. But what is it to get into the psyche of writing these, uh, female centric thrillers or the, uh, you know, the Hallmark Christmas movies, because they, they, uh, both genres seem to follow a set pattern.
1: Well, you know, well, first of all, virtually every movie actually follows a set pattern. I mean, we, we can't kid ourselves as much as, you know, you know, You know Christopher Nolan doing memento. And he just takes the pattern and does it backwards. But there is a set pattern. I always like to quote Christopher Vogler's writer's journey or, or the writer's mythology. I mean, every story, you can go from Apocalypse to The Godfather to... Wizard of Oz and, and a lifetime movie where, mm-hmm. where you meet somebody in their ordinary world and something happens, it takes them out and it brings them into their extraordinary world, you know, and
2: but
1: mm-hmm. along the way they meet people like in Star Wars, uh, you know, meet, meet, meet the sage which is Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's the good and the bad. And really that, 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 uh, that sort of uh, uh, structure, it, it, I mean, it really works for virtually every single movie out there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there might be some interesting indie films, so they don't follow the structure, and there might be some other. But when it comes to making a Lifetime or a Hallmark movie, you really want to stick to that structure because the audience—that's what the audience really wants. Right. And, and so, it, it, and the hardest part about that structure—we pretty much know the beginning, we pretty much know the end. It's the journey in the middle. The journey in the middle is the hard part because there's so many pathways a character can take, or multiple characters can take, and sometimes that's that's actually where writers get actually uh, writers blocked is because that journey in the middle can go in so many different directions. People don't know which way to go. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, know, that makes sense because there's so many, you know, I think, uh, who was it? It was uh, Joseph Campbell that said there's only five different styles of story to tell. There's the hero's journey. There's the, um, you know, there's the romance. There's the coming of age. And I think that's three of the uh, five right there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I actually think they all whittle down to the hero's journey Mm -hmm. Uh, some way. I mean, it might be an anti-hero. But they all really whittled down to that, and mostly, you know, you know, Christmas movies, romantic comedies, lifetime movies. They, they, you know, in a lifetime type movie or a female-centric thriller, the heroes, the the mom, the therapist, the doctor, always the female, and the the seventeen-year-old girl who's going through troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a romantic comedy, it's it's always going to be the woman who, you know, maybe her husband stood her up at the or her fiance stood her up at the altar. And and now she's going to go to Hawaii and go fall in love and eat somebody. And, mm-hmm. and you know, she's the hero now, you know. Um, right. So that hero's journey really does play in virtually every story. It's really interesting, actually, you know, uh, uh, if your listeners know or, or in your class like to actually take. Uh, boobies and just break them down and, mm-hmm. and see how they fall into those structures, and they really do fall so quickly into those structures,
0: right? Which and makes easy, you know. That's what I hear, but you know, after a while, we we blamed our professor who had told us that I'm going to make you hate movies because you're going to see at you know plot point one, it's this at the end of act one, it's this at the midpoint, it's this. Here's the you know this thing over here, and like how it all connects and it comes within like. This happens within the first 15 minutes. This happens within the first half hour and so on right. and so forth. You know, every quarter, uh, quarter hour mark or milestone.
1: Right. it just shows how simple minded we all are. We really just want that, you know, <laughs> And uh, but, but, you know, it, 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 this is the thing though, as your professor sort of missing is that these storylines, I mean, if you take jaws, I mean, tone and the feeling of Jaws and where you are, and, you know, and, 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 and the town and the summer and the shore and, th- and that environment, sure, the story's the same, you know, but it's within that environment. Or if you go to, you know, uh, 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 you know, you could take a Wolf of Wall Street or you could take a, a Apocalypse Now. You know, now it's in Vietnam. You know, I mean, you're still taking the view away to somewhere that you want to experience, you know. But we all go to the movies to see people, you know, mm-hmm. and we want to connect with people. That's why I always say is well, the best shot in movies is the cheapest shot in movies, which is a close-up. Mm-hmm. It's all about a close-up, you know. And sometimes I'll watch movies that people make and they're, they're, there's no close-ups. I'm like, what are you doing? It's all about the eyes, you know, and mm-hmm. see people's souls. In their eyes, and that close-up is the, the best-looking shot and the cheapest shot you can do in a movie. So, don't miss it. You know,
0: makes sense. Uh, well, the, that's perfect that you say this because I got to see Tolkien yesterday, the new Fox Searchlight film that comes out in May. And you know, I the mirror shots always seem to be the most expensive shot, and they angled the mirror just so that you see them running down the staircase and you see their backsides. And I'm just like, how long did it take just to set up that mirror shot, make sure there are no cables, no cameras, no lights, you know, at the turn right. of the 20th century, just to get them to run down the stairs and make sure that it was caught in the mirror.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 it's you know, it takes time. Actually these days, even on, on my movies, which are lower budget movies, uh, I have, uh, a visual effects guy I rely on a lot. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes there'll be cables and there'll be a boom in the shot or a stand or whatever. And, and and sometimes I'll just be like, let's move on and let's let Jeff fix it. Jeff will fix everything. <laughs> you know, so you wouldn't believe actually how much they do. In fact, I love looking, I love watching behind the scenes and making ofs. And uh um, in fact, there's an Instagram page, like hashtag making of, uh That's a really good Instagram page where they really show a lot of. And and you you know, it's watch Harry Potter. And half the movie shot on green screen, and they're just adding everything, but. You know, you can do visual effects uh, pretty inexpensively. So that shot that you might have bought took a long time. They might have had stuff in the shot, but they gave it to somebody else to clean up. And, uh, you know, and, and then they could, could do things faster on set, you know, because on set is where money gets spent. You know, one guy sitting in a room, not as expensive as uh, 30 to 100 people sitting on set waiting on you. On you. You
2: know, get a shot.
0: Right. See that, that makes sense. Um, how do you crank this stuff out? I mean, you have these, you know, these shoots, like a lot of indie films are done in like 27 days. What would it be for, <laughs> you know, for like a lifetime movie to shoot one of those?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I make movies in 12 to 15 days. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so three weeks or less. Um, 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 you know, a lot of the, the days shooting has a lot to do with the money. Um, um you know, the more days you shoot, the more money it costs. So there's sort of a limit, uh, to, to how many, you know, how many days you can shoot. And then it's a sort of a page count situation. So, you know, you really don't, uh, you, some, some, uh, generally we're shooting six to, uh, six to 11 pages a day. Uh, t- nine, 10, 11 pages is a lot of page count to do in a day. Um, it's more comfortable being at six, seven or eight, but, um, but then it comes to a question of money, you know, and, uh, uh, I would love to shoot 27 days, but uh, mm-hmm. who has the money for that? <laughs> you guys, just feeding people for 27 days is expensive. You, need, you won't believe how much water we buy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very big catch
2: on set, too, where
1: uh, sometimes I'll catch breakfast and walking around handing out water to people, and I'll tell them, like, don't do that because, first of all, they're adults and they can go get their own water. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the water is expensive, and thirdly, if they don't really want the water, what they do is they take a water, they take one sip, they put it down, and then they don't know which one's their water. They never come back for it. The whole bottle's wasted. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, so I'm, you know, when I'm making movies and I've got to make them on a budget, I'm even watching my production hand out water to people and telling them not to
2: do that. You know oh, wow.
1: Cause I want every penny on camera. I don't want. I don't want every. You know, I don't want. You know, I don't want to be wasting water screen. right?
0: And is it easier to film in a three-week period versus, say, a twenty-eight-day period or a three-month shoot? Um, is it a little more challenging? Is it more? Is it just more fun to work on a on a time con- time constraint?
1: Well, I, I, you, I mean, it's it's definitely much more challenging to to shoot a movie
0: in in
1: you know thirteen days, um, and you really have to know your stuff and know what you're doing. Um, I don't suggest it. I mean, I, I well, I suggest everybody go out and make a movie because I love making movies and, and it's very democratic these days. I mean, you can take an iPhone and, and take your friends and go make a movie. There's really nothing that limits you these days. Um, or, or you could you could buy a Sony A6300 used for 600 bucks and now you have a 4K camera that shoots raw. So,
0: um,
1: um, but, sure, without, without a doubt shooting more days is, is going to be a, a leisure. I mean, I shot a Western last year in 17 days and I thought that I had an attorney to shoot see it that way. It was amazing how much time I had. And it was only 17 days. You know? Um, you know, when you get that page count down to two or three or four pages a day, uh, for me, because I move quickly and I'm decisive, uh, it gives me a lot of time, you know, a key to being on set, making a movie in 13 days. Uh, the challenge is fun and it's exciting, you know? Um, uh, but, uh, you really got to be decisive. Uh, you really got to know where you're going to put the camera. You got to you got to really make a decision and just go with it. Uh, something I tell people all the time is like, don't let anybody know that your decision could be wrong. Just if just if you make a decision, just go with it. Just say, I want the fifty millimeter up, and I want to track from the view, and that's it. And just be decisive because the more decisive you are, the more material you can shoot, and the faster you'll go, and the more. You know, production is all about collecting data for post-production. That's all it is. The mm. more material you shoot during principal photography, the more material you have for your editor to sculpt and turn into a better film later on. Mm. So if you're decisive, if you're moving quickly, if you're a leader, a director has to be a leader. You know, they have to direct not only their actors, but their crew. Um, and then be aware of just all of the outside influences that come in and, and, and how to kind of control that and, and and get your crew to do what you need them to do and, and to get them to do it nicely, you know, so you don't come off looking like a jerk, but you're championing them, you know, almost like the coach of a of a football team, you know. And then and then you get things done quickly and efficiently. And and then you're enjoying the process because everybody else is enjoying the process. So when you're a leader and you're directing and they see you enjoying the process and having a good time and you're nice to people, then everybody else will take that extra 10% in and you'll have a pretty good film in 13 days.
0: See that's great to hear because the nicety part had only seemed relegated to voice acting in the voiceover world because I've seen so many actors and big name people just mistreat others on set and it just sounds so daunting and rude and like you have to eat a lot of garbage just to sit there and put up with it to keep your career going and I don't I don't like seeing that in in most societies or most of society. Well,
1: you know, it happens periodically, without a doubt. People, there's a lot of ego on movie sets. A lot of ego. Ego really is a factor of insecure. You know, people have a big ego because they're really insecure. You know, that's where it comes from, I think. And um, uh, and it happens. And, and, you know, if you're shooting an actor, you've already shot them for three or four days, and they're difficult, you're kind of stuck with them. And you just have to figure out their personality and how to make them comfortable and eventually get them to turn. And, and, and before the end, they become your best friend. You know, um, but... You know, I've had an actor before um, uh, uh, being very difficult to a crew member in prep, and I called up that actor and I said, "Listen, that's not going to happen on my shoot. So you don't treat my crew that way. Uh, we all work together like a family and and make these movies together. And everybody's working even more hours than you. So you're going to shut up and do the job. And and uh, and if you don't want to, then don't do my
2: movie." And the
1: actor called back and said, "Look, I, I I'm so sorry. I can't believe I behaved that way." it won't happen and it and it, it turned out being a very blissful environment and and it went great and we're friends to this day and it all worked out so sometimes you've got to call them on it
2: you know <laughs> uh,
1: sometimes you've got to be ready too to be to call them on it and fire them and sometimes though you're stuck and then you have to find a way to sort of that's the the leadership part of being a director and a producer is also the, the politician part. Sometimes you got to be a bit of a politician and, and uh, juggle personalities. Um, uh, I mean, I've had actors show up on set who were literally, literally like on drugs, slurring lines in a scene. And, you know, it all worked out in the end, but it was not easy the first day and everything worked out eventually, but you've got to really, how do you cope and deal with that situation? You know? So being a leader, being nice, Being a politician, you know, um, and the more you enjoy the process as a filmmaker, everybody sees you enjoying the process. And if you treat people well, then it's very hard for people to be uh, mean or nasty or egotistical when they see the leader uh, treating everybody well and enjoying the process.
0: Right. The whole lead by example thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) Now, I have to ask you this pitching you a movie and one of these lifetime movies or one of these Hallmark movies or one of these Netflix specials or Amazon or whatever, how would someone go about to entice you to want to make one of these movies? Obviously, you have to have a well-written script to start with, but on a personal level, you know, interaction, because, uh, you know, uh, networking is two-thirds of everything in this industry. Well, well, so here's the issue with me.
1: (laughs) I... I uh, I don't finance my movies. I am hired to make my movies. So basically, I've developed a track record through the years as someone who makes a good movie on time with great production quality and on budget, right? And so companies who need content, they they call me up and they ask me to make movies for them. So when someone pitches me a movie, it's sort of, it doesn't work because I'm actually pitching those companies movies of my own, or they're handing me scripts to make, mm-hmm. or they're calling me up and saying, Hey Mike, we want a movie about black market babies stolen by, you know, or, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, just send us a few ideas and I send them a few ideas and then they pick one and they hire me to write the script. Um, I've I've, and, and I've developed the, these relationships with these companies uh, because I've developed a track record of making movies uh, on time and on budget. And uh, so um, um, I don't really ever really make other people's material except for material that comes from the distribution companies. What I suggest is if people want to get their movies made, one thing to do is contact and find those distribution companies that are actually making movies that need content. What happens with a distribution company is that if they don't have content – that they don't have sales, mm-hmm. and so they need movies, and uh, so you can go to the American Film Market exhibitors list, for instance, or the uh, uh, Berlin film, the European film markets in Berlin. Or a lot of people don't know this, but the Cannes Film Festival actually has a bigger market, which is called the Marché, uh, uh, which is the Cannes Film Market. Um, And all of these smaller distributors, they all go to these markets and they all need content. They all need movies. And those are the people I make a lot of movies for. Um, And um, so I, I suggest actually contacting those companies and pitching them ideas. Then they then send me the scripts or they say to me, hey, someone pitched an idea we like it and we actually write it or whatever it might be. And that I think is a more efficient way for somebody to get there to network because you're networking with the companies who actually need the content. So it's a more efficient way to network and possibly get movies made and create relationships that are long lasting with companies who have a deeper pockets.
0: Makes sense. You know, yeah. Cause people yeah. are always looking to open doors or find ways to get through and just don't know where to start. And these seems like, these seem like great places and great advice to start.
1: Well, a great way to start is just literally go to the American Film Market website and mm-hmm. look at the exhibitor list. And you literally have a list of like, I don't know, 500 companies that distribute movies and make movies. Mm-hmm. And you can start there. You can also go to go buy a day pass at one of these film markets. Uh, you know, uh, the American Film Market uh, it's in October. It's in October, November. It depends on what year. Mm-hmm. And it might cost $300, $400 for a day pass, but the amount of networking you'll get by wandering around the halls and meeting people, is huge, it's huge. And generally I suggest you, you, you go, you, uh, you go like the last day because a lot of the people they they want to buy, they want to talk to buyers. They don't want to talk to filmmakers
2: mm-hmm.
1: because they're working and they're trying to sell their product to buyers, to foreign buyers. But on that last day, they're packing up, they're cleaning up The buyers aren't around anymore and then they're willing to talk, take the time. Um, or you call people up ahead of time, you set up meetings, but that's a really great, it, everybody's consolidated in one place. I mean, it's really hard to get into Paramount or 20th century file style, But There's a lot of small companies that they use. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a great way that they're, they're all aggregated together in one place. It
0: makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause people were just wondering about that. Um, and I was wondering about that. Let's be honest. But uh, this is something I, I rarely ask filmmakers, but I think you'd be open to this one. What's one of the films that you absolutely loved that wasn't well-received and one that you're like, I can't believe I I finished this and everybody else actually liked it more than you did?
1: Oh, of my movies? Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, none of my movies are well-received. Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let's
1: just, let's just, let's just be blunt. What happens is, it's a funny thing about the movie business, okay, Okay. is that that it's, If I wanted to start a car company and make a car to compete with Ford, okay, Mm -hmm. the only guy who's been able to do it over the last you know 50 years is Elon Musk, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 he spent billions of dollars. He's got billions of dollars of loans from the government and everything, and he's been able to kind of do it, right? Mm -hmm. But what we could do with films is we can actually make a product for a, a thousandth of the cost, a millionth of the cost of a studio film, and actually get some people's attention. It gets some people like our film better than they like a Marvel movie. You know, you might, you know, uh, um, um, you know, you take for instance, my mother has no interest whatsoever in seeing Marvel movies, but she loves going to small little dramatic, independent films, you know? And um, um, so what's interesting is that we actually have the ability to make a product that competes um, and competes for space with those big studio films. You know, we can't make a car, you know, I can't make a... I can't manufacture a car out of cardboard, you know, and, uh, and give it pedals and go here you, know, you can use this or you could use your Lamborghini, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. So what's interesting is that, so what that, that also does though, is it means that we're always being, uh, compared to those Ferraris and Lamborghinis, you know? So like one of my, uh, one of my movies based off uh, <clears> of <throat> like maybe, I think it was like Ted Bundy movie. I made a movie based off Ted Bundy and, uh, uh I made it for a hundred thousand dollars in 10 days. Uh, 10, 12 years ago or something. And the uh, movie's great. I mean, I'm really proud of it. I'm really, really proud of it. But, like, I read, I'll read, read a review and, you know, someone rips it here, someone rips it there, and then someone compares it to David Fincher's Zodiac or something. Like, How could you compare a $100,000 film to a $100 million film? I mean, that's not fair. I shot it in 10 days. And I've heard interviews of David Fincher who says himself, he's like, I can't shoot a movie quickly, and I need to use millions of feet of film, and I need to do tens, if not a hundred takes of things, you know, and whereas, you know, when you make a movie in 10 days, you, you, you're like two or three takes and you're out, you know, and you've got to watch the money and you only have so much time. You can't go overtime because you don't have the budget for, for OT, you know? So, um, so, you know, which of my movies are well received you know, it's, if you take, for instance, my movie, the dog who saved Christmas, um, you know, we made that movie in a very short amount of time and for a very little amount of money, but that movie actually ended up creating, I directed The Dog Who Saved Christmas Vacation, The Dog Who Saved the Holidays, and then there was also The Dog Who Saved Easter, The Dog Who Saved Summer, The Dog Who Saved Halloween. And so that one first movie was able to, and I didn't expect it, but it connected. You put a dog on the cover. Uh, we have some funny bits in there. Um, and, and I was surprised that that movie was able to actually spawn off five whole secrets and maybe even more, you know. But on the other hand, I have a movie that I'm really proud of that I love, Called Soda Springs. I shot it in uh, Idaho uh, with my friend Jay Pickett who started it. We co-produced it together, and it's one of those movies where I can li- literally just have the camera on a shot of a pickup truck pulling in, and the clouds going by, and I don't have to cut away. It's just like it's just a beautiful tableau, and or beautiful sunset shots, and it's just a beautiful story. And um, it got received well, but it hasn't sold well. You know, it plays on television here and there but it, it's not something where someone came along and said, Hey, I want to take that theatrical. Or I want to give that a bigger, a bigger, uh, you know, I wanted to play on HBO rather than, you know, it plays on some strange channels here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's kind of a bummer because I think that's one of my best movies ever made. And it's, uh, and it really works, but that's show business, right?
0: Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you yeah. make these smaller budget films, you make a lot of these TV movies, you connect with a female audience that, love these type of films and these family films. Yeah. Um, you know, what pushed you in that direction to tackle the female market?
1: Well, here's the thing is that, that I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, just like anybody out there who's listening right now, you, 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 you people should never pigeonhole themselves as one genre.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: you're a filmmaker and you're a storyteller, you could tell any story, you know, and it's all film language, film language, same film language. You might use a horror movie. You might also use it in a lifetime thriller. You know, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, and you, you can apply different things. One scene might be more of a horrific scene than one scene where it's a sweet scene with a mom and a child. You use, you use a different type of film language, but it's all the same language of film. Um, but um, um, what drove me in the genre is really just the work. It's just it's just people hiring me. Uh, lately, the really the biggest buyer of independent film, honestly, is, is the Lifetime Channel. I mean, it's a funny thing. I was... I was doing a, a a panel at the Beverly Hills Film Festival. and I called it, uh, my friend my friend Nino owns the festival and asked me to put together a panel. On. So I'll put together a panel of how to make a living making independent film. Because a lot of independent filmmakers are there and they're not making a living. They don't quite understand where the disconnect is. Why aren't they making a living making a living film? And why is Mike Pfeiffer making a living? Well, one of the reasons is because. Um, and I think it started, you know, back in the nineties, I worked with my father selling films at these foreign markets that ran his video label. And, uh, I was at AFM, like I said, that, that people should go check out or the, the can film market. And, and, um, you see that it's a business and there's certain genres that always work. You know, the romantic comedy genre always works. The female centric thriller genre always works. The action you know, kind of, you know, the Steven Seagal's and Jean Claude Van, Van Damme genres always work. The horror film genre is a little bit hit and miss because uh, foreign markets don't quite get our stuff, or or just comedy, uh, an American comedy. Like uh, if you make a low budget American pie, that probably is not going to work in Korea or Japan or Germany. It's just that the humor doesn't translate over. So. For me, what happened is when these companies hire me to make movies, these companies are in the business of making money, and they're going to look at which genres sell best. And the genres that sell best generally are romantic comedies, romantic comedies with animals, romantic comedies with holidays like Christmas, and female-oriented thrillers or dramas. And those are really the two main ones that... So my point is that if someone's out there, an indie, indie filmmaker, they're trying to figure out what to make next, you know, it's it would be awesome to make a movie about, you know, a kid who's a drug addict and he, and he you know, and he he gets lost in the woods and then he has to whatever it might be, I don't know. But where's the place for it? If it stars a big name actor, then you're going to you're going to find a place for it. But if it stars your buddy, you're probably not going to find a place for it. But if you made a movie that's a romantic comedy with a dog, you might get Hallmark to buy it. You might get Ion Channel to buy it. You might get uh Netflix to take it. You know, you might you might actually see a profit without even having to name that guy, you know? Mm. So it's really where the business is and what sells. Right. right. Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, so it's definitely the marketing and knowing which route to go rather than, like you said, the drug addict film or, you know, the avant-garde stuff. Cause like liquid sky oh, cool. just finally hit on blu-ray, um, six months, uh, I'd say about six months ago. And, you know, right. this was a little indie film from 1983, or eighty two. That's just now being noticed, almost forty years later.
1: Right, right. I mean, if you look at if you look at a film like Polly starring Charlize Theron, mm-hmm. if that movie starred you know you or me or our wives or girlfriends whatever, instead of Charlize Theron, nobody would see it. But because the star is a big Hollywood star, people are going to see it. So you have to look at what films are can you can you make and sell and make money with that don't require big Hollywood stars, you know, uh, that don't require a big budget. A romantic comedy is a, is a great place to go. I mean, uh, you know, if, if one of your listeners is, is living in a city like, say, Boston, you know, or uh, Miami, I mean, you know, get a couple out, create, write a story, that, and, and don't reinvent the wheel. Look at what some of the great romantic comedies are. Take some of those ideas, you know, create a story based off, you know, some, find some twists in terms of story. And then take your cameras and go out into the city and shoot a romantic comedy when, you know, two actors, uh, two characters who, who fall in love somewhere. Or, you know, they fall out of love, they fall back in love again. And that's a movie that has a better chance of selling out. A lot of people, they're just not interested in it. They don't, they don't want to make a movie like that because they'd rather make the movie about the drug addict. And what are we all? But at the same time, you're still a storyteller. You're still a big That's a very important thing about what I do is that I don't watch... I don't watch Lifetime movies on a regular basis. I watch my own movies. I watch other people's movies. But that's not my choice of movie to watch. But I take a lot of pride in making the best damn Lifetime movie I can and really making those those scenes really you know, come to life. There's, there's a lot of pride you take in it. So if you're a filmmaker, whether you're making the really cool indie film or whether you decide, okay, I'm going to change and I'm going to make a romantic comedy, you really got to take pride in that genre. And really hitting the beats on the head that that genre is supposed to have and take pride in the product, the same way that uh, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day about how, you know, if I went to, when I was a kid, I wanted to go to car design school. I went to architecture school, but I wanted to, I, I really, in retrospect, I wish I had gone to like Pasadena Design Center and design cars. But if I had graduated that school, I might have graduated thinking, I'm going to go work for Ferrari, I'm going to go work for Porsche, I'm going to go work for Lamborghini. I'm going to. But what happens is you end up at Honda, you might end up at Toyota. You might end up just designing the handles of a door for a you know, Toyota Corolla. You know? But let's say you're lucky enough to design a Honda Accord. Well, you're going to make the best damn Honda Accord you can. And not only are you going to take pride in designing that Honda Accord, it's going to actually play to the masses. Like a mass amount of people are going to want that car. You're going to see a lot more Honda Accords on the road than you ever see a Ferrari on the road. And you're going to take pride in that. And then you're going to be driving down the freeway and you're going to see your car design passing you all the time you know, and the guy who designed the Ferrari might never see his design out on the road. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pride in, in, that you can take in, in designing a film, uh, that fits a certain genre. And, uh, you know, your grandma's watching Hallmark and, uh, and the movie shows up, you know, (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, your buddies that you went to high school with might, might not, uh, might not have ever seen it, but you know, your grandma calls you up and, uh, you know, tells you that, her, you know, you made her gay, you know? Right.
0: right. Or <laughs> yeah. Stacy from church or whatever.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it happens all the time to me. In fact, like my wife is an actress. My wife's a lot of my movies. And, you know, we were going to go see, uh, we went to see Hello, Dolly in New York City. And we're walking the door and these two little old ladies, they look at my wife. They're like,
2: you're an actress,
1: aren't you? And she's like, yes. Yeah. So and they're like, you were on Lifetime last night. And, you know, that made my wife's day.
2: You know, it's just so
1: sweet to have these two little ladies recognize her, you
2: know, so right.
1: you know, if you're a storyteller, you're a storyteller, if you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker, don't get caught up in a genre, because if you get caught up in a genre that doesn't sell, you will not make a living
2: making independent film. I like that. yeah,
0: yeah. And I like that you're aware of that and not just into the hype of everything, or I need to be this guy, or I need to be the next Christopher Nolan, or I need to be XYZ. You're like, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an artist, but this is also a business. Let's focus on the business.
1: Well, look, I want to be the next Christopher Nolan, but if I held out and said, I'm not going to make a movie unless it's $200 billion, well, then I can't feed my family. I've got a wife and a son, I've got a house, I've got cars, i got insurance, you know, but I make a living making movies. You know, some people ask me all the time, well, how come you don't make bigger movies? Well, because I don't get hired to make bigger movies. I get hired to make these smaller movies, and I make six movies a year and I have freedom. You know, I don't have executives on top of me. I don't have the logistics that a $200 million movie might have and I don't have the stress. So I don't know, you know, I'd I'd love to show what I can do because uh, I don't, there's very few people I think that can do what I do in, in, in sort of my, you know, making, making quality movies that, I mean, I have, I have like 30, 40 movies that play on lifetime and like every week I have four or five movies that play, which is great. I would love to show what I can do on a major television series or on a feature film that's, uh, you know, uh, a big budget film. But uh, but in the meantime, I got no complaints. I'm making movies,
0: you know. Right, you're not fixing uh, the five freeway in the middle of July.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, not roofing houses (laughs) with hot tar. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, I I tell like through that all the time. Like, come on, guys, you're not working in factory putting, you know, uh, screw A in the slot B. You know, you're making movies. Let's have a good time. It's a joy to process.
0: Right, and it sounds like you're having right. a great time doing it because you're you're doing what you love, and you're working. Yeah. You know, you're making six movies like you said a year, and you don't have the pressure of, oh, we need this reshoot because this didn't test well with this audience, or this didn't do right. what we wanted over here, or the actress blinked weird.
1: Right, right. Mm. I mean, I really have very little of that. I have a little bit of it here and there. You know, I mean, I just did a movie for a, for a company where the. The head of the company uh, watches all my dailies and makes notes on everything. But ninety nine percent of his notes were were great, you know, and he was happy because, again, it's a product, and I'm making a, a movie for somebody else who's financing it. It's not my, I, we have to remember we're making we're making we're we're spending somebody else's money. Um, I mean, when I made Soda Springs, I could kind of do whatever I want. Um, when I made the Western called Soldier's Heart last year, I could kind of do what I wanted. But when I'm making a product for a Hallmark or a lifetime, you know, you have to abide by what they're looking for. And if you do, you have a very happy uh uh executive producer who hires you again. You know, because that's a very important thing is is to make sure that your your financiers, your executive producers or the, the distribution companies hire you, that you're 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 appeasing them with what they're looking for. Uh you're easy to work with. You're collaborative, um, and and then they will hire you again, and then you get more work. You know, right. I mean, uh, I work for the same companies over and over and over again because
0: of those reasons. And at the end of the day, you get to pay your bills and you get to make movies.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's uh, listen. I, I when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That 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 kind of didn't happen after about mm-hmm. the age of thirteen, mm-hmm. and uh, so. To me, the next best thing is being a director, I mean, being on set, making movies. is kind of like being uh, Clayton Kershaw in the middle of Dodger Stadium, pitching,
0: uh, pitching a shot out, you know. You know, uh, what's it called? They, they spoke with Todd McFarlane about that, and he, you know, the Im- founder of Image Comics, created Spawn, created Venom for Marvel Comics. Uh, you know, he's got his own toy line and everything else. And they asked Todd, you know, are you thrilled with it? And he's like, no, I'd give it all up for one season of Major League Baseball. Uh, Would you do something like that as well? Or hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh yeah, oh yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I would give it all up. Yeah, I actually, but you know, I play. You know, listen, I, I, I really, I, I think people should have outlets. I play ice hockey. I'm 50 years old, and I and I play ice hockey. I got a, a guy in my team, 73 years old, and he still plays. And uh, um, um, I actually stopped playing hockey for about 15 years because you know I got married, had a kid, and you know and. Kind of put it off to the side, and I, uh, I last year I got back to playing again, and I'm, I'm never going to stop again. So that's my, uh, you know, that's my get out there and play my major league baseball or my NHL hockey. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I, we have a joke on set where where uh, I'll be like, "Come on, guys, we got to hurry! I got a hockey game tonight." Because hmm. sometimes I work twelve hours, fourteen hours, whatever it might be, and then go play a hockey game. Oh, uh, and I'm energized. It's great. I'm exhausted afterward, but. Uh, Nothing better than playing hockey.
2: You
0: yeah. Know? You
1: know, yeah, I my love fr- playing baseball, but actually as an adult, playing hockey is a, a great
0: point. Yeah, my friend Steven actually used to play hockey till he hurt his back, and I just recently went back to judo, so I know what it's like uh, getting back into uh, the athletic aspect of it in the competition.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I'm in better shape, so it's good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your go-to genre for your own viewing pleasure, since, you know, like you said, you don't normally watch – Uh, the genres that that you make by other people, but you know, you're at home, it's Tuesday night, uh, your kid's in bed and you just want to watch something that you enjoy. Like what's your go-to genre? Uh, I
1: mean, I I like everything. I mean, I'm I'm a big horror fan, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm a big fantasy uh, or just straight hard drama. I mean, you know, uh, I I can watch crash one day and watch, uh, Watch Transformers the next. I mean, uh, as long as it's a movie, uh, I'm I'm cool. You know, I mean, um, it 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 it, it I, I I don't I don't pick specifically you know what genre I like all genres. You know, uh, um, you know certain filmmakers I think uh, think do better than others. You know, um, I I love watching a Fincher film. You know, um, or going back and finding you know that you know there's like there's an Orson Welles film that that uh, that was never finished. You know, or <laughs> you know going back and watching you know like uh, you know Kubrick's amazing but you go back and watch Doctor Strange love and then watch 2001 and then watch The Shining you know sometimes it's fun just to focus on on directors and uh so you know I like everything and um, you know probably my favorite film to watch over and over again uh which might sound strange to people and it's a uh, it's a film that people don't recognize as is I think is great is Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun okay Um that movie is I can watch that movie over and over and over again. There are moments and beats in Empire of the Sun that are just so shockingly good and work so well. And it's it's Christian Bale's first movie. And um, Spielberg got no recognition for that movie, but he's he's begun to through the years. People have kind of gone back and watched it and realized how good it is. Um, that's a film I can watch over and over and over again. I don't know. It's like, I don't know, maybe because I, I like movies about like, you know, like like coming of age stories, little boys who who have to figure things out. Because I felt like when I was a kid, you know, I was a, a product of a divorced uh, family and the, the youngest child, and sort of had to kind of figure things out on my own. So I kind of like, you know, like the Black Stallion, for instance, is a film. But the same thing about a kid who, who was about the same age as uh, as Christian Bale in Empire of the Sun. You know, those are, I, I like watching those movies where because you sort of you see things from a kid's perspective in an adult world.
0: Um, yeah. So, I dig it, yeah. Because you know, I like I like a lot of animated stuff. I mean, I'm just very impressed with with just the talent it takes to to draw a cell. And oh, so I tend to focus on that sort of thing.
1: Well, the Spider Man into the Spider Verse. I mean, you saw that, right?
0: Oh yeah, I think uh, that's the that's the best Spider Man movie they've made. Even though Spider Man Two is still my favorite.
1: that, that movie is amazing. I mean, yeah. the animation. I I was so impressed with that movie and it's, it's pretty cool. It just kind of, I thought it kind of came out of nowhere Um, and um, um, I wonder if it's even going to make Pixar sort of reevaluate what they're doing, you know, by seeing a film like that. It it was spectacular, Um, but again, it's, it's film language it's storytelling, you know, in fact, I think that animated movies really started coming along like the Pixar movies when they started uh, treating them like feature films and shooting coverage, shooting the animation like it's coverage of a feature film. And like I talked about close-ups or over the shoulder shots, you know, really, really treating, treating, uh, uh, animated characters like they're living in an actual world and it's filming them and, and lighting them. You know I mean? If, if you watch the credits to an animated movie, like a Pixar or something there or, or, or a Spider-Man in Spider-Verse, you know, there's a lighting director, you know, there's a gaffer basically, even though it's in a digital world because they mm-hmm. finally, and I think that's when, we, we sort of hit this really uh, uh cause I think there was a golden era or there's been a golden era of animation with uh, Pixar movies and, mm-hmm. and now everybody's sort of fed off of those, you know. Right. On the Lego movies and things. But it uh, has to do with just treating them like feature films.
0: Yeah. I I was at Sony when they had the poser uh, the poster teaser on the wall. This was maybe three years ago for, yeah. for Spider Man into the Spider Verse. And it was just the black background with the red spider. And I looked at him. I said, you guys are making a Miles Morales film? And, <laughs> e- and everyone freaked. They're like, who told you? I was like, I'm the comic book guy. It's right there on the wall. I didn't need anybody oh, to tell God. me. I saw the logo. Right, <laughs>
2: right,
0: right, Yeah, yeah just yeah, instantly great. I saw it. And they're just like, who told you? I was like, it's right there. So, and but I there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people who, don't, who
1: didn't know that. And yeah. they don't know that story. And now they do.
0: And yeah.
1: the movie's huge.
0: Yeah. And, and it, you know, I was thrilled with it because I just thought it was uh, it was amazing. And I loved ex- everything they did with it. Um, you know, there were I mean, every movie has, you know, something that's questionable at some point. But it's of one course. of those things that if it doesn't suck you out of the film, then then I'm fine with it. Right. Right. You know, and how do you avoid doing that? You know, because like there are certain movies that you'll watch them. And then, like, you're buying the premise, like, it's a sci-fi film. Okay, I'm suspending disbelief. There are these aliens and there's robots and there's these things. And then this line comes in that just completely will pull you out of the film and go, what the hell was that? And now you're just lost for the next 20 minutes trying to get back into the story. How do you avoid that sort of thing happening?
1: Well, you know, you know that really
0: – so, so –
1: it really comes in. Uh, let, let me say this: is that there's there's really three auteurs to a film. There's the writer, director, and editor. Sometimes the same person does all of those. Sometimes it's a different person for all three. Um, sometimes, uh, 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 like me, you know, I'll write a movie and I'll direct them. I never edit my movies. Um, I come in and I finish them with my editor. But um, it's really important to have enough material. Uh, shot through principal photography, so your editor can really staple that material, and then be able to sit back and you and your editor really watch it and assess it and take the time and not lock picture until you feel like those weird moments aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's I think it's I think it's actually a big flaw in a lot of filmmakers' abilities is they are not able to sit back and watch their film and look at it from an audience's perspective or a third person perspective and. And they get caught up, or they fall in love with something that they did. Um, sometimes you got to cut things out. Sometimes it might have taken five hours in a day to shoot something, and and you edit the movie, and you're like, you know, this isn't working. I, and I, and I loved it. I loved the moment. I loved the way it works, but it's just not working. I got to get rid of it. So sometimes you got to have the, you know, the tojones to 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 take the scalpel and cut things out. And and so I think you know your question has a lot to do with actually. You know when you're when you're cutting your film and when you're locking your edit, like right before, and really taking the time to watch that movie and be able to really evaluate whether scenes and moments work. And um, I'm really surprised when I see a studio film when there's like moments and scenes that don't work because there's so many people evaluating these things and they have focus groups and they, and they still you still end up with you know characters that don't make sense or, or, or scenes that just don't work, things that are boring, and they're like, my oh God, how did this happen? They have money for reshoots and pickups. I mean, I don't have time for reshoots or pickups or money for it. You know, what we shot is what we shot. That's why I have to shoot as much as possible within that time frame because I'm not I'm not going back and doing pickups. Right. Very, very, very seldomly do I ever do that. You know, whereas studios, they love to hire first-time directors or someone who won a film festival, and they give them a superhero movie to do or something or, you know, uh, a dinosaur movie, and then and then before you know it, they're spending an extra $20, $30 million on pickups and reshoots. Well, you know, if you hire the right person for the job, you don't have to do that. But also, maybe in the edit room, everybody can evaluate that material well enough and watch them well enough and really know how to shape that movie into something. So you don't have to go out and spend extra time and money on on uh, pickups and, and things. You know, or or when it does play finally, those weird moments aren't there. You know, I actually I like to watch movies with other people. Uh, because if I start cringing and I look over at them and are they cringing? Like then I know, I know something doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just watching it by yourself.
0: Right, that happens right. to me with dialogue as well. To go back to um, animation, uh, the last Mr. Peabody and Sherman movie that came out that was I think it was DreamWorks and it was distributed by Fox. Uh, right. You know, I mean and you. I watched as a kid,
1: as right. a kid, I watched that all the time in, yeah. you know, in the seventies.
0: And the yeah. movie was 88 minutes and I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, you know, you're buying the premise, you're looking at the updates, the animation's great. And it's supposed to be the smartest dog in the world. And at the end he goes, surely with all these geniuses in one place, we can come up with something. And it, you know, with three minutes left in the movie, it sucked me out because right. he's supposed to be the smartest person or smartest dog in the world. And I was like, well, the pu- plural of genius is genii. I, how'd they miss that? And now I got to like get back into the movie. My friend's like, Really, that's what you nitpicked? I was like, I bought the premise. It's the smartest dog in the world. So, right. yeah, I'm going right. to nitpick that.
1: Right. Well, and, and you're saying that. It's probably something that if maybe maybe everybody that was watching the movie evaluating it before the cut was locked, they didn't wait to the end because they already knew the movie. They are a little bored by it
2: because they've
1: been yeah. living with the movie for the last two or three years, right. you know, and – they never waited to the end to go, is it working? Is everything working? I don't know. You know, I am always surprised though. Everybody's sitting in a room or in a at a, at a much higher big budget level and have hundreds and hundreds of people involved and they miss things like that. You know? But so you know, movies are subjective too, right? This is it's all it's all subjective case. There is no right or wrong and uh you know, that's why film reviewers, you know, you go on you know, Rod Tenato is a Metacritic and there's a movie you thought was great, has terrible scores. The movie you thought was terrible has great scores. Um, right. it's subjective, you know?
0: it happens to me all the time. I think I tell people if I think it's the stupidest idea on the face of the planet, it's going to make a ton of money. Right.
1: right. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I, yeah. I'm a fan of, uh, Transformers movies. I, mm-hmm. I like Transformers movies because I, I feel like I get, I get the joke. Like I'm in on the joke. I know, Michael Bay doesn't take them seriously. There's a sort of an inside joke there. There's moments no to take seriously. And it's sort of the eye candy. Like, I kind of like the eye candy. I dig it. You know, I dig all the crazy CG animation, everything, you know? And, um, and actually Bumblebee was, was really an 80s film wrapped up in a Transformers movie. But, um, but, you know, it's subjective. It works for me when like I talk to other people, like, how could you even walk into the theater and spend money on that movie?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? But I have my take on why I enjoy it. You know?
0: Right. And, and I'm a little bit of that school of I grew up with the Gen 1 Transformers, so it's a little cringeworthy on on my end. But, yeah, I can right. understand where people will like it and where younger generations or people that didn't grow up with Transformers will enjoy it. So I can't fault anybody for it.
1: Right. And at yeah. the same time, we can watch Citizen Kane and we can watch Transformers and find right. out of it. Because movies are awesome. I mean, movies are just – I mean, I don't know how you do this, but I go and sometimes I sit in the theater my wife's next to me or my son and I'll guide you and I go, this is why we do this for a living. This moment right here. Like, you know, it's a, to me, it's the greatest form of art. I mean, it really is. I mean, you could tell me a Picasso or a Jackson Pollard all day long. I don't want really to give a crap. I actually care about a people or a Spielberg or an Orson Welles or a John Ford. Like, that to me is the combination of, of, of the visual medium and the audio. And uh, how to affect someone emotionally, you know, you know I could go to uh, uh, the Louvre all day long, and I'm not, you so know, affected the same way I do when I when I'm watching Indiana Jones and a boulders rolling at it, you know. Mm. And uh, I suppose the greatest form of art, you know. It's commercial design, it's commercial art, which to me, you're designing something for an audience, and uh, rather than just for yourself. Right. And uh, it's 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 awesome to be a part of, you know.
0: Yeah, I was asking a couple of pro wrestlers that turned uh, TV actors and filmmakers, uh, how difficult is it waiting on the delayed gratification for when the film is done versus the instant gratification of the ring or, you know, say the theater, for example, going to a play and not having right. that instant gratification? How difficult is it for you to sit there and now it's done and to wait and hear back from somebody or... You know, you went to the theater and you heard from those ladies uh, that talked to your wife, oh, we saw your movie, not realizing that it was the one that came out maybe three, four years ago or whatever.
1: Well, when you make low-budget movies, you can't wait for gratification from others afterward because you don't
2: particularly get it.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> the gratification comes from the checks, that clear? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to tell you honestly, you know, when, when, when I get paid money to make movies, uh, that's very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, and it's gratifying being on set. I get a lot of gratification of, of coming up, writing a scene or, or, or on set, blocking a scene and, and bringing it to life and shooting it in a way and finishing that scene and, and, and going, wow, that was a really, like, I took something from nothing and made the scene and my editor's not going to take it. And I know exactly, generally I know what my editor's going to do with it because they're all my shots. Um, so I have a lot of gratification on set, making the bottom. That's mm-hmm. where I find a lot of gratification, you know. And and the relationships you build, and the friendships you make, and uh, the hills you overcome, you know, that's that's a big deal. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I just shot, I just shot last uh, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, not least the week, the week before. You know, there's a scene where these girls have a huge fight. and One hits one over the head. Uh, with a bat and then they put her in the car and they push the car in the lake and then the girl wakes up the next morning in the lake and she had to crawl out and her parents find her and you know i wrote that scene you know and here i sh- I, sh- I-, I shot everything and when i was done shooting all, it was really just such a satisfying feeling to know that i've got it all there you know on the hard drive ready to be edited and it's it's and I, I I know I got it. The girls did a great job of the performances. The 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 car went in the lake without a hitch. Um uh the girl in the water, uh you know, we had wetsuits and I had a wetsuit on shooting, my DP had a wetsuit on shooting, the girl had a wetsuit on, the water temperature was fine, the 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 stunt coordinator, everything was you know, it, was, it all worked out, you know, and that's really gratifying to me. I do not have to see the finished piece just to, to be gratified by that.
0: Yeah. Well, see that that's great to hear because a lot of people, you know, focus on the adoration rather than the check clearing and the fact that you made the art and created something out of nothing, like you had said earlier. That's just that just makes it a little more fun and makes it a movie that you want to be on set for.
1: Yeah. Well, the adoration, uh, if you're if you're doing this for adoration and for ego, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't care about that. I don't wanna be famous. I don't wanna you know what I mean? I I, I like I like doing just like doing the podcast or other I really enjoy telling people how to make movies and and, and inspiring people to go out and make movies. That mm-hmm. that to me is actually really enjoyable. I like when people come to my set and, and, and sitting down in the director's chair and showing them what I'm doing, you know? Or when a production assistant is working on the movie and I take them and I put them with the camera department and they learn camera, you know.
2: Uh,
1: i taking my son when he was 14 and making him a, a camera operator and at 15, 16 years old I on my set operating cameras. But um, I, I, I just feel the, what's so cool about movies these days that we're all with our iPhones carrying around a 4K video camera and you can shoot movies yourself. And um, as long as you understand the film language uh, or start learning it, You know, and uh, and you write something, and you take it all the way through because a lot of people don't finish. You know, that's a big deal. You really got to take something from from formulating the idea to writing it. I mean, a lot of people can't even get past the writing stage. You know, to actually shooting it, to editing it, doing all the post production. That's probably probably, that's really satisfying to me. That's more satisfying than actually. You know, someone writing a good review or, or or someone recognizing what you did on the street. Uh, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't excite me as much. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, inspiring people to make movies. That's pretty. That's pretty cool.
0: That's a great outlook on all this. Um,
2: yeah.
0: All right. So, you know, dream question at this point. You have a yeah. hundred thousand dollars to make your dream indie film, and you have a hundred million dollars to make your dream big budget film. What would they be?
1: <laughs> well, boy, that's a tough one. Well, one dream would be that people would actually watch baseball movies,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but nobody does. <laughs> so I can't get money to make a baseball movie, which is really a bummer. And I can't get money to make a hockey movie. I, can, I think I can get money to make a soccer movie, but I really don't care about soccer. You know? <laughs> so uh, uh, I would love to make a $100,000 film about baseball, to tell you the truth, but it's never going to happen. Okay. Um, I really actually enjoy making horror films. Uh, if if your listeners actually go back and watch my movies, Ed Gein, The Butcher, Plainfield, a Boston Strangler, or Bundy, or BTK, um, uh, or uh, Drifter, Henry Lee Lucas, you might watch those films. You might watch them and go, oh, my God, this movie's made in 10 days. But you know something? There's a lot of um, – I think you can sense my excitement making movies and making – crime and horror movies and things when you watch those movies. I think you can really kind of feel it in them and, and because there's a lot of I mean, uh, you know, doing period pieces in ten days for a hundred thousand dollars is it, with great locations and, and you can feel it actually. I think you can feel it. It's 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 kinda of tangible when you watch those movies, I think. Um and if I had a hundred million dollars, um, I don't know. You know, I, I I'd uh i probably want to do something that's a pretty radical sci-fi indie film. So it's got an indie vibe, but it's got a sci-fi... I'll tell you a good film that I think is an interesting film. Well, a couple of them like that. I mean, Blade Runner, obviously, is probably the ultimate in an indie film wrapped up in a massive budget. Mm-hmm. I really, I really love that. I love Blade Runner. I, love, I was a fan of Blade Runner twenty twenty nine. Another one I thought was uh, spectacular. It had some problems with the story, but Oblivion, Tom because I come from a design background. I have a you know architecture. I was a graphic designer. From seventh grade, I had a, I had a still camera, a certain the camera, I was taking pictures with. You know, and I drew as a kid. I it as a kid. What I like about Oblivion is that every scene the movie was designed, and, and really designed well, uh, from the spaceships to the houses, to, to things that, that characters are riding on, um, and I really enjoyed that. So I think, for me, if I was make like a $100 million movie, it would be making something in a world where I could literally design, just like, you know, animation to you is a big deal, it's when you're animating, you're designing every single thing, Um so it's like when I was a kid, I loved getting these books, uh, you know, like these
2: Star Wars books,
1: and Indiana Jones books, or, uh, you know, books that showed actually how everything was drawn and sculpted and created before it was even put on camera, like all the props and everything. So I think my ultimate would be to to, to, to make like a sci-fi movie where I could design the entire world or oversee the design of my production designer and my costume designer, the entire world and create a tone in the world like Blade Runner, mm-hmm.
0: you know. I dig it, man. I dig it. You know, and yeah. I, I love your energy and your passion for filmmaking because some people just seem so blasé these days, and you know, treat it as uh, you know another nine to five job or like we said, fixing the freeway, and not really paying attention to what they're doing. And you're just thrilled making movies.
1: I love it. I mean, if you're if you're if you're not thrilled making movies, you get out of making movies. because I mean, what are you going to get thrilled by? I mean, I mean, I just bought a new drone. I bought the uh, the new uh, DJI Mavic Two Pro drone, and like. Oh, my God, I just take it out. I, I have a Hasselblad camera with a vintage chip on the end of a drone, and I could use it, and, you know, drones you can use as a steady cam, You can use it like a jib, and you can fly it. I mean, I was in Hawaii flying it right outside of a, a ninth store hotel and pulling back and seeing the waves crashing. I mean, you can't get excited for that. You're making a movie. I don't know. You know, you, you might have to think about
0: something else. <laughs> yeah, that,
2: that's
0: uh, that's the world we live in. Some people are just never happy. Uh, Michael, where can we find you on social media? And uh, what before I let you go, what are what would you like to tell any aspiring filmmaker or screenwriter to uh, to just get out there and do?
1: Well, first of all, social media i have Instagram, which is just uh, Mike Pfeiffer, M-I-K-E-S-E-I-F-E-R, no P's, no double F's—and I'm on Facebook. But I think you know if you want to look at what I do. IMDB is probably the most complete list of you know. Trying to keep up with what I do on the Internet Movie Database, and then on Instagram, I, I try to put uh, behind the scenes things and stuff up on Instagram as much as I can. So that's a good place. Um, I think that uh, for filmmakers, you know, there's this. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this before, but uh, there's this Shia LaBeouf video out there where he just does this. I don't know if you ever seen this. He does. He put this video out. of came on a green. And he's telling people to just do it,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen this before? Um, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's hilarious. And sometimes I, I I pull up that video and I hand it to someone who's like, maybe like, how do I write a script? What do I do? And I'm like, just fucking do it. Just, just do it. You know, it's a Shia LaBeouf going, just do it. Like a lot of times, you just gotta, just gotta fucking like, get your laptop. Go sit on the couch. Don't go anywhere for three days and pound out as much of a script as you can. You know. Or if you if you don't have a script but you have a friend with a script, you know, and you want to make a movie and you don't have any money, that's cool. Get just go take your iPhone, you probably have an iPhone, you know, it just go start shooting. I mean, I think that's a really big barrier with people is they just don't believe that they can do it, and you really can. You really can get out there and the more you do it and the more you practice, the better you get at it. And And we have all this research we We can go to your your website, your websites all over we can We can watch movies and you can understand the language of film. I'm not a big fan of film schools because uh I just don't I don't think it's necessary. I'd rather people go to business school and 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 get jobs in film as a production assistant work their way up or something, or make films themselves, because no matter what, making films is business, and it's good to have a business background. But making movies, just you just, just got to go out and do it. You Just got to like just, just decide. I mean, I, I have a friend who um, works for me, and uh, he's a he's a young he's a guy in his twenties who works for me as a line producer and other stuff. And uh, and he um, he um, he puts a lot of political stuff on social media all day long. He's writing things on Facebook all day long, and I'm like, you, you got to stop! Like all the time that you're spending on Facebook writing political. Uh, uh commentary and answering that you could be writing a script. Hmm. I said, I challenge you, I challenge you. Just spend a weekend writing a script. And you know somebody he did it? he wrote an entire script in a weekend. And now he's got a script. And uh, his next dream is to go make that script, you know? So now I'm challenging him to make the movie.
2: You know?
0: That's awesome, man. Michael yeah. Michael Pfeiffer, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate everything that we've discussed today. Uh, it's been eye-opening because people just don't know where to go, and you, you've basically set us all straight and where to look and so. just to get off our ass and do something.
2: <laughs> right, right,
1: right. And, and, don't, and, you know, someone might say, well, you have the money to make it. You're getting hired. And I'm really being clear. You don't actually have to have any money to make a movie. Really, very, very little. To actually, make a movie. You just have to have some wherewithal and just go it. Because we're all walking around with 4K cameras in our pockets, mm-hmm. all of us. Right? It's crazy. Yeah. You know, in the history of mankind, when has human beings been walking around with a device to actually record history? You know,
0: it's now. Right? Yeah. Well, that's so, beautiful, and thanks. you know, we'll leave it with that. And that uh, Guillermo del Toro found those two young directors that made the movie Mama. Uh, for virtually no money, and it was just a three-four minute short that right. le- that led to him producing a bigger-budget uh, horror film for them with the same title.
1: Happens all the time. Yeah, it happens all the time. Like, Leah, Leah Dunham got an HBO TV show. She did a little short film. It happens all the time. Yeah. And if you're like me, and you don't end up getting the the big break, you still might be just they have a time making movies, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know.
0: Perfect. Well, that's what we like to hear. Uh, Thank you so much again. Have a great afternoon. I will definitely be talking to you soon.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. (laughs) All All right. Thank
0: you.